Well, howdy, y'all. Howdy? Come on. There you go. I'm David Brown. I'm a host of the Texas Standard, which is heard statewide on uh, public radio stations, NPR stations. And um, it's awfully, uh, awfully good to see such a turnout on a uh, Saturday afternoon. Glad you could come and, and join us for this conversation about uh, how much has changed and perhaps how much hasn't uh, since the implementation of, um, of the new campus carry bill. Um, first of all, we need to uh, uh, thank the sponsors of the Texas Tribune, and uh, we want to get to the panel shortly, but I just want to tell you a little bit about why this situation was of particular interest to me. Um, 1966, I think a lot of people have heard about what happened just across the way there. I see a lot of nodding heads. Um, Charles Whitman went to the top of the UT Tower and began shooting, and before it was all over, there were uh, more than 40 people uh, who had been shot and injured, and depending on how you count it, uh, anywhere from 16 to 17 people dead. Um, one of the interesting things when the Texas Standard was putting together its special broadcast on this, and I'd encourage you to check it out, uh, it's called Out of the Blue, uh, if you want to uh, check it out online. But we were trying to find a way to tell this story in a way that was different from the way that the story had been told so many times before, which was focusing on the shooter. And one of the things that we did was we asked people who were actually there if they would come in and share their stories with us. And a remarkable thing, we discovered several things actually. More than 100 people responded, and so we spent about a year gathering interviews with these 100 or so folks willing to tell their stories. And maybe a quarter to a half of them had never told their stories publicly before. And some of the individuals had never even spoken of it since that day. Um, which gives me chills just to think about it right now. Um, but as they spoke, there were a lot of interesting and quite revealing things that maybe are in the literature somewhere, but certainly I had not heard of them myself. One of the facts, or one of the memories, and we know how memory is, but one of the recollections was that on that day, a lot of students had guns on this campus. Um, that there were students who liked to go hunting up in East Austin, one in particular remembered, he had a gun. A lot of kids had uh, uh, guns in their you know, truck. You remember the truck racks that used to be on, in pickup trucks? And they had their guns with them. On the day that the shooter began firing, Austin police were really overwhelmed. They didn't have, there were no SWAT teams, of course. There had never been an incident like this, not just in Austin, but anywhere in the country. And um, a lot of those students went out and grabbed their guns. Today, when you talk to police and other law enforcement agents who are on the scene, they will tell you, some will tell you that was an aid. Others will tell you that it created a kind of chaos that they didn't know they would survive. Um, the, one of the gentlemen who is credited with finally bringing down the sniper when he got to the top of the tower, he found that really the, the biggest danger, threat to his life, was the incoming fire, the, the, the fire from down below. Um, and uh, finally he did, he was able to, to um, uh, neutralize the suspect, as they say. Um, but the 50th anniversary of that incident came on the very day that Campus Carry was instituted um, across the state of Texas. 
I suppose I should point out that in the years prior to campus carry, one was allowed to carry on campus, um, or at least the sidewalk, for example, um, but they were not allowed in buildings or in certain public areas. And another caveat, you had to have a concealed carry license. And a lot of people forget this. As the law reads, people, and it still reads, people are prohibited from intentionally, knowingly, or recklessly possessing or going with, excuse me, or going with a firearm on the physical premises of a school or educational institution, any grounds or building on which an activity sponsored by a school or educational institution is being conducted, or in a passenger transportation vehicle of a school or educational institution. However, note, in 2013, Governor Perry signed into law an exception allowing people lawfully carrying firearms on campus to keep them locked in their vehicles parked on campus. Now what changed on August 1st of this year is that an exception to this law was actually carved out for holders of a license to carry, what used to be the concealed carry license. But of course we have open carry now in Texas as of January 1st. So license to carry holders can now carry their concealed firearms into college and university buildings and classrooms, although prohibitions remain for so-called sensitive areas. Uh, these are, of course, different schools come up with different sensitive areas, a different list of sensitive areas, and they're trying to keep within the spirit of the law while at the same time maintain what they believe to be um, uh, a prudent approach to uh, concealed carry on campus. Offices and uh, some offices and events, of course, are still off limits to concealed carry. So here we are, Senate Bill 11 is now the law. I'd like to see a show of hands if we could. Um, how many people in this room do not have an opinion on whether this is a good change or a bad change? Show of hands. Do I see just one person who does not have an opinion on this? That's, that's kind of telling, perhaps. We're not likely to change anyone's mind here today. The, the law is in place. The question is, what has actually changed on campus, if anything? What school impact has it had a couple of months into the application of this law? Uh, well, to help us explore this question are some people who are intimately familiar with the law and its actual effect on campus. I'm going to try to go alphabetically here, not necessarily in order of how people are seated. Um, Jose Banales, have I pronounced your name correctly? Yes, Good. Uh, he has uh, served as the chief of the Texas State University Police Department since May of 2016. Uh, previously, he held several positions at the San Antonio Police Department, most recently serving as assistant chief of police. And during his time with the SAPD, uh, Chief Banales was awarded the Aguila State Award, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. I know it's an eagle, right. a state award. <laughs> uh, the highest national recognition from the Hispanic American Police Command Officers Association. Thank you very much for being here on the panel. And I'm going to do this th throughout here as we get started. If there is any one thing that has changed, which is the question of the hour, is there one thing that comes to mind that you would point out that has changed? I would say yes, and that's the training of our officers to be more vigilant in the fact that now we know that when we make or respond to a call uh, of such a nature of an individual with a gun on campus, it could very well be that an individual is lawfully carrying that weapon now. So we have to train our officers to be able to 
to approach that incident with a little bit more regard to their safety and the safety of others as well. Diego Bernal is a state representative. Uh, he is a Democrat from San Antonio. He's represented House District 123 since 2015. Uh, 2015. He's a member of the House Urban Affairs and International Trade and Intergovernmental Affairs Committees. Uh, Representative Bernal previously served as an attorney for MALDEF, which is the Mexican-American uh, Legal Defense and Educational Fund in San Antonio, and also as a San Antonio City Council member. Uh, Representative, uh, I'll put the question to you. Any one thing that you've noticed that has changed? I think that you know, my district includes UTSA's downtown campus and Trinity University, which is, right. a, which is a private university. And my experience is that students at UTSA, one, there's a, a fair amount of uncertainty about what the world looks like for them because they're all learning about it, experiencing it for the first time. But also there's an interesting sort of commentary on class where the legislature's decided for the public school students what their life is going to look like and then given the private schools and their students the ability to decide from themselves. And so I've heard both sort of an external view of it and an external view from students. That's, a, that's an interesting observation. Um, Mia Carter is associate professor of the in the Department of English at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, professor Carter is a university distinguished teaching associate professor and a uh, 2010 recipient of the UT System Regents Outstanding Teaching Award. And she most recently was involved in the lawsuit against the University of Texas, Austin, and the state uh, over the recently enacted campus carry law. Um, it seems almost silly to ask you what, if anything, <laughs> has changed. But, but I, I'll put the question to you as well. Uh, if there were any one thing, uh, what would you say? Um, I would say that uh, at the beginning of the semester, there was a lot of tension and uncertainty and a certain amount of fear, um, faculty, students, staff, um, we had, in the past week, some person leaving bullet casings in our department, in the English department. One was outside of my office door with a message inside. It said triggered. Mine said, got triggered, got, got triggered. Um, so that kind of, there was a calm period, and I think, in my world, in my corner of the world, um, and the kind of anxieties came right back to the surface. I think there's a lot of uncertainty for people on campus about what's going to be coming ahead in the, in the next legislative session. We've watched these bills pass in Missouri and in Kansas. Um, I think Regent Hall has announced already that he doesn't want, um, wants to get rid of the um, a private office exclusion. And um, uh, one of our colleagues, um, Steve Friesen, uh, called everyone's attention to the constitutional carry portion of the Republican um, 2016, the Texas Republican Party's convention, which goes for no exclusion zones, and you know the idea that liberty um, means entirely your right to carry a gun anywhere at all times and all places. So I think there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of fear. We've seen some really ugly. I think there's rational people who are gun carriers, but we've seen some really mo some of the most horrendous. Um, and violent reactions to the student activists, the Cox, not Glock students in particular. And um, so um, the passions are there, and they create a constant state of uncertainty. Stephen Good is a professor and chairman of Campus Carry Working Group at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, 
Professor Good joined the University of Texas at Austin faculty in 1977, and he currently holds the James Kronzer Chair. Have I said that correctly, Sorry. Professor? Uh, that's in trial and appellate advocacy at the UT School of Law. He serves as chairman of the UT Campus Carry Policy Working Group, which aims to set rules and regulations for handguns on campus. His was not an enviable task, to say the least. Um, what has changed uh, if you had to point out one thing in particular? Um, I would say the reaction at the law school has probably been somewhat different from what Mia has experienced on, in her department. It's been fairly seamless at the law school. I think the major thing that's happening is that the enactment of campus carry has been picked up by the media, and the national media, media in particular, and it has fed into the narrative of Texas as being a gun-toting state of a bunch of crazies. And I think it has already hurt us some in our recruitment of students. I think it's going to, in the near future at least, make it more difficult to, to recruit faculty and staff and bring in students from other states. Uh, I've talked to a lot of reporters from out of state, and when they say, well, Texas is the gun-totingest state in the country, and I have to point out things like, well, you know, we're 20th in the nation in uh, handguns per capita. We're 32nd in the number of license registrations. It doesn't seem to penetrate, because it fits into the narrative. We just had uh, someone cancel a concert at the Basque Ray Concert Ray LaMontagne, right. Right. And because of campus carry, but someone told me he's already performed at the University of Utah, which has had campus carry for 10 years. Well, someone also told me um, his guitarist was uh, having surgery. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't, uh, <laughs> nonetheless. Uh, I want to move on to Antonia Okafor. Is that the way you pronounce your last name? Forgive Okafor, me. Yeah. Say it. Say it aloud. So it Okafor. Okafor. Yeah. Forgive me. Okay. Uh, she is the Southwest Regional Director of Students for Concealed Carry. Uh, Ms. Okafor worked with Students for Concealed Carry to help pass the legislation, allowing Texans with concealed handgun licenses to carry guns inside public university buildings. Uh, she has interned for U.S. Senator Kelly Ayotte, of, he, a Republican from New Hampshire and Texas State Senator Jane Nelson, a Flower Mound Republican. Uh, most recently, she worked with U.S. Senator Rand Paul's 2016 presidential campaign. Uh, but the question to you, uh, what has changed on campus? Uh, I think, uh, Stephen said, the best way possible is that the media has picked it up. And you know, Texas is not the first state to pass campus carry, but yet, it's opened up a dialogue on both sides, which I think we do need in this country. We need it more than ever, really, an open dialogue uh, to talk about the issues, whether you're for it or against. Um, it's something that's um, not gonna stop with Texas um, and something that other states need to look into and, and, and start their own conversation as well. So I think it opened up dialogue, which was very needed. You're a graduate student, is that correct? At U University of Texas at Dallas, is that right? Correct, okay. yes. Um, Professor Good, I'm going to admit something, but one of the vicissitudes of, of doing news coverage is that quite often the stories begin to run together. And so right about the time when we were having a robust discussion or uh, sort of a conversation in Texas about campus carry, there was also the open carry issue. And I remember when we had Professor Good on the big broadcast, uh, I said, 
open carry inadvertently, and he quickly corrected me. But it raises this other question, and I think it kind of gets to your comment about the perception of Texas. Um, do you think people understand what the law is, what's allowable, what's not, who carries, who can, who can't? Um, it's, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I do know uh, from the very beginning when I was asked by President Fendez to chair the working group, and let me just correct something you said. It is the past tense. Past tense. I chaired it. Yes. I am no longer chairing it. doesn't do it anymore. And that's right. another thing that's happened since the beginning of this year that I'm quite pleased <laughs> yeah. to say. Right. Um, but it, it became apparent very early in the comments we were receiving that people confused open carry with concealed carry on campus. And so we were quite uh, vigorous in trying to dissuade people and to publicize that this was a concealed carry law, not an open carry law. Again, I will tell you, sometimes the media does not help. Uh, one of the local TV stations recently ran a story about campus carry, and they called me, I talked to them, and then when I saw what they had done, they accurately quoted me, but the image that they portrayed was of someone with a handgun, a handgun open at his belt. And so the image that went out to the public was open carry. Well, I noticed something that the university did right on the eve of campus carry. Maybe some of you noticed this as well. Uh, President Fenves sent out a message just on the, on the eve of it in which he explained that if you see a gun on campus, call police. But I, I had not heard that message very loud, certainly not loud and clear, in the run-up to August 1st. Was there a reason that was held off? Or, because it seems like if there's a fear concern that knowing that you're not going to see, you know, uh, uh, some people carrying guns would go a long way toward alleviating a lot of at least surface fears. Well, again, part of our group, working group's mission was to educate people about that. And we went out and we talked to different groups throughout campus. It was part of our report. Every time I was interviewed by press, I emphasized that this was a concealed carry, not an open carry law. Part of the working group's recommendations that President Fenves adopted also involved education. And so part of the recommendations were informational materials and uh, that would go about not just to the student body, but to staff, to faculty, to parents. And so there's been a lot of stuff that uh, has gone on that you may not be aware of, but where has been, it has been emphasized, if you see a gun, call 911. Mm -hmm. and, and that's been sort of part of the pitch throughout uh, the last six months or so. Uh, Professor Carter, when it, your critique of this law actually goes right into First Amendment issues and freedom of speech. Um, Say a little bit more about that, and do you believe that, in fact, the conversation, the academic conversation, has in any way been affected by this law? Um, I, I, I believe that even when the bill was being debated, Admiral McRaven, who's no wimp, um, and President Fenves both you know, articulated the point that the, a gun in the classroom, a loaded gun in the classroom, would potentially have a chilling effect in the, in the classroom. Um, I don't think it's an extreme 
belief. Um, our founding fathers believed that. Uh, Thomas Jefferson believed that guns shouldn't be any part of education at all. Um, the private universities apparently seem to share similar concerns about what it would mean to have guns in classrooms and what it would mean to have loaded guns in classrooms. We don't have the right to opt out and we're kind of stuck with the law. Um, I think a lot, lot of people would answer that uh, question differently. Um, I was teaching this summer, the first summer session before the law went into, um, the, into effect on August 1st, and it, it was looming. And so on the last day of class, the students were, they knew I was part of the lawsuit and were talking about the ways in which they would adjust their behaviors. And a lot of students said, I'm not going to participate actively, as actively in discussions as I have previously. Um, one student said to me that she was kind of upset about, a very activist student said she was upset about the law because um, it, it was teaching her how to, how to profile people. She said, I, I don't want to be in my classroom looking, thinking, is that frat boy caring? Does he have, you know, she said, I just don't want to think about, you know, well, I suspect my fellow students in, in that way. So I think people are, um, I would answer that question very, in a, in a wide range of ways. I believe that the classroom should be a safe space for passionate debate and difficult dialogues and controversial subjects. Let's just be blunt. What is it that you're afraid of? Is I, it that you're afraid that if the debate gets too passionate, someone will draw a gun? Well, I've had students target each other for things, uh, dis disagreements that started in class over quite banal things. Um, last two summers ago, I had to get intervention from mental health services and our own counseling service because there was a conflict. Uh, two, it was a literature t class. Two of these students were in the sciences. Um, the male student was interpreting literature through some physical physics theory. was all way over my head. A female student disagreed with him, and he was extremely enraged and came up to me afterwards and said she was trying to humiliate me in class. And I said, no, I think she was, we're here to disagree with each other in dialogue. I think she was just interpreting differently. And, and the next, during the summer, we meet five days a week. And um, the next day, he was even more upset. And I went right to, we have, we, we are lucky as a campus that we have good mental health services and emergency services and um, it took two, two different sets of teams on campus to, to intervene in this. But um, I, I'm, I'm not afraid for myself personally. I, my, um, I've, only, I've been threatened in my office over grades. Um, I've never been threatened in the classroom. I have had many students, female students, stalked um, over breakups. Um, those are the kinds of things that I'm, I'm worried about. Think disagreements that um, erupt in the classroom, and they do erupt in the classroom. It's but part of what we're, we're supposed to be forgive doing. Me for, forgive me for interrupting, but, but I'm hearing about like the students stalking girlfriends and, and the person who thinks is worried about the frat boys. That's the kind of the student. We're talking about 21-year-olds and typically graduate students, correct? I mean, frat boys, I mean, does that comport with reality, the, the fear? I don't know. We had an 18-year-old uh, off campus at a frat house with a 40 caliber Handgun and but that would, be, that would be illegal anyway. Right. right. But, I mean, guns don't necessarily stay locked to the person who owns them. Um, you know, guns travel. The, the statistics on guns, gun thefts, guns being stolen from people's cars or their glove compartments and their apartments or their drawers, uh, I mean, that information is there. Um, just be, we have reciprocal agreements. I wanted to ask you this question. I mean, we have reciprocal agreements with 
something like 30 states. Mm -hmm. um, the, the license age in Vermont, it's the lowest, it's age 16. Um, and several of the other states uh, have eight, include 18 and 19 year olds. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of students from, uh, it is 16, I, I read that on concealed carry um, in Vermont. It's a hunting culture, it's also a book reading culture which gives us a nice balance. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, um, we have lots of states where there are students who are teenagers who are like, uh, eligible for getting concealed um, permits. And we probably don't have a whole lot of students from Vermont, but we do have them from some of the other states where Alabama, I think, is 18, and um, Montana. Um, There's several kind of southern and western states. And, and, and guns travel. Guns travel. Mr. Cuffer, what got you into this issue? Yeah, uh, well, it's interesting that you know she brought up the fact that she has students that female students that were afraid of you know people or boy, ex-boyfriends stalking them. Um, for me, I see it, and I, I began my journey in this because as a female student, I wanted the right to be able to defend myself against that say ex-boyfriend who wants to harm me. Um, say I'm walking across, just walking to my my car at night where I'm a grad student and I don't have a means of self-defense. And so that's where I got started, is the fact that I wanted to be able to protect my individual right to defend myself against someone who wants to harm me. Do you feel safer at school? I think for me, as being able to protect myself, um, and that's what Students Concealed Carry advocates for, is per personal protection, not campus protection. It's the right for me to be able to protect myself based on my training and the way that I can, I can defend myself with a gun. So for myself, yes, I feel safer because I can protect myself in case something happens. Chief, I noticed that in looking at the states that have adopted these campus carry laws, I may be mistaken here, but um, I believe that almost all, if not all of those states that have had a change recently, that those all post-date the Virginia Tech incident. Um, and in fact, to go a little bit further, I believe the National Rifle Association had helped craft some of the model legislation in many of the states. Um, I've also had law enforcement, an ex-law enforcement officer tell me that colleges are a unique place for crime in that they're kind of almost a magnet, that they can be considered by some in the community as a kind of soft target. Uh, let me ask you, uh, do you believe that, given your, in, in your expert opinion, that it's possible that Texas State University is a safer place because of guns, uh, because of uh, the presence of concealed carriers uh, on campus? You know, I can't really tell you right now because the law is too fairly new, and there's very little to go by from August 1st to now but I will tell you that in, in my experience with how we deployed uh, policies and procedures in the city of San Antonio when we were preparing for the various law changes back in 1995 when the, the city of San Antonio was preparing for the first concealed uh, weapon permit in, in the state of Texas, there was a lot of concern similar to this. There's a lot of fear, there's a lot of uncertainty. But, and we, we took a lot of measures to prepare the public and the community there in the city of San Antonio. And like Mr. Good said, it was a seamless thing. We didn't experience any of the issues that we thought we were expecting to 
to happen. And we did the same thing a year ago when we were preparing for open carry. Uh, we went out into community. We have various community meetings, various forums. We even met with open carry Texas folks to get their perspective of why they were pushing for this, this, this legislature. And again, there was a lot of concerns. There were a lot of, uh, a lot of unknown and a lot of fear. That law went into effect January 1st. And I just spoke to the chief of police there in San Antonio with a community of about, with Bear County, 1.8 million people. To date, to date, they have not had one call in regards to open carry. I will tell you that in Texas State University, when the law went into effect August 1st, I have, we have yet to get a call in regards to concealed carry on campus. And my understanding throughout the whole state of Texas, there's only been one incident in regards to a, a weapon in a, on campus, and that was at Tarleton State University where an individual had an accidental discharge. I don't know the particulars about it, but uh, right now it's too early to tell, you know, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And, I, and I'm not taking a side either way. Uh, I do have concerns for how, how to be able to provide a safe environment for my university community. I do have to acknowledge the fear of faculty and staff and how what, what proactive measures, what safeguards I can put in place to assure their safety. So yeah, I have those concerns, but uh, I, I can't tell you an expert uh, opinion right now because it's, it's just too early to tell. Uh, One other place where um, there were reported incidents was Tyler Junior College, which doesn't even have concealed carry yet. And there were two incidents last week and another one on the 19th that was reported this week. I'm not familiar with those. So. Yeah. Um, Representative, uh, we've all heard about the, in fact, it was mentioned earlier, the, the, the Cox Knock Locks protest. Uh, it was here on the UT campus. Are you going to uh, ask me about that? Yeah, well. Uh, <laughs> You can't carry a sex toy onto campus and display it, but you can carry a, a handgun. Um, something wrong with this picture as you see it? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the picture itself is hilarious. It's a but, great picture, yeah. Um, I mean, look, I, I want to go back to a point that you made about, about the media. <laughs> no, about, about, no, 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 but about, yeah. about the media and, and whether or not Texas has sort of earned this reputation for being you know, right. sort of like the Wild Rooting West. Right, shooting, right. Yeah, sure. And, and, and I, would, I would say that the example you just asked me about confirms that the answer is yes. Because when we pass laws like open carry or campus carry, what we're doing is we're saying these are priorities for us. Last session, we didn't improve public education. We didn't really add to the coffers for UT. We didn't find a way to insure young kids. In fact, we cut, we cut Medicaid expenditures or reimbursements for severely disabled kids. Mm -hmm. We went backwards. And so if, and, and, and now some of us are saying the most important thing next session has to do with bathrooms. So I think we've absolutely earned this sort of national reputation for our priorities being backwards. To me, this, thanks guys. Um, <laughs> uh, but to me what this did is it imposed a culture change on people who didn't ask for it. 
It ensured that a bunch of my colleagues got reelected because the thing that they're most afraid of is losing their seat and they're trying to satisfy primary voters, not the general public. And it, it deflects from and takes time away from issues that are really important. You, you know this as well as anybody. It, it, towards the end of the session, because there are some bills we just don't want to see on the floor, right. we engage right. in this process called chubbing, which is where we, we, we try to make something last as long as possible so it never gets to the floor. There are some very good, valuable, life-saving bills behind those issues. But because we're worrying about these, right. we can't get to something like a mammography bill that would cover a secondary mammogram like a primary mammogram. Except the fact that Texas is not the first state to pass campus carry or the first state to pass open carry. So to say that we are, we in fact deserve that title, then does Oregon deserve that title? Does, does North Carolina deserve the title they have right now? I would say they do. Uh, because and they've made it a priority. May I ask what that title is? May I ask what that title is? Are you talking in reference I'm, to Charlotte? I'm talking about, so, so in North Carolina, they passed a bill that is discriminatory against the LGBT community, and so that's what people know about them now. They're not known for reforming education. They're so not the bathroom known. bill. Right, right. Bathroom but bill. we're talking about campus carry. Right, and what, but what I'm saying is that. Is and the that, fact that campus carry is for everyone, like someone who looks like me, a black female, and has nothing to do with the fact that it's not prioritizing things that are important to certain people, but are prioritizing things that are important I'm, to everyone. So I, very clinically, I will say that people, people should judge us on the things that we make priorities. And we made this a priority last session in relation to other things that are priorities to other people. Mm -hmm. So those people's priorities lost, and other folks' priorities won. If people want to look at Texas and say, clearly, guns in Texas is a priority, they're welcome to think that because they're right. It was. You know, and because of all that exploitation on that, I even had a crew from Germany, a camera crew and some reporters mm -hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago on our campus, wanting to film uh, different footage of the campus, hoping to catch somebody carrying. They had heard that we were gonna implement a con right. op uh, concealed carry on campuses but they didn't realize there was concealed carry. And, and then they had this image of Texas that everybody in Texas wears a gun strapped to their hip. <laughs> and, and they were really disappointed when they went home because they did not have any footage of anybody carrying a weapon. What I'm wondering though is if there's, a, um, if there's an absence of a kind of a goodwill in this conversation. And we're seeing this at a national level on the, sort of a, in a larger political sense. But a lot of people suspecting that campus carry is really about advancing a larger political agenda, right? I mean, that's, that seems to be the undercurrent, at least from, from I'll all I'll defer so that question to the state representative. I already said it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You believe that that's... that's Absolutely. But, and, and, and yet, you, for you, it's a safety issue, and you presumably feel quite earnest about that. And Students for Concealed Carry has never really delved into the constitutional aspect of it, really focus on the self-defense aspect of it. The fact that it really doesn't matter your ideological preference or your, your political background, it really has to come back down to the fact that I as a student should be able to, who I already have rights to be able to conceal carry off of campus, um, bringing that right onto campus just like anybody, should, anybody else should be able to. And so that's what it comes down to. It, it's not really, 
what the media has really made this to be about is this two-sided issue where you're either on this side or on this side, mm -hmm. where I've spoken to many students who differ completely on my, on my political beliefs, but in, when it comes down to am I able to protect myself as a, as a, a white person, as a black person, as a, uh, regardless of your sexual orientation or your gender, as an individual, am I a human able to protect myself against someone who wants to harm me? Because the fact of the matter is, is that this is empowering those who are law-abiding citizens, people who like, are like me, grad students, faculty members, staff, who under the eyes of the law have been able to have a license to carry uh, permit on campus. Does that change the fact that there are people, there are bigots, there are dangerous people and criminals who want to harm me regardless of the law? No, it doesn't change that. It changes the fact that I'm not able to protect myself against those people who want to harm me regardless of the law. So that's the... That's the Chief, you were nodding your head about something. Well, yeah, if I may add, because she, she has a good point, because in my experience, when we were meeting with open carry folks there in San Antonio, uh, a gentleman came up to me and, and really made a point to, to say that those responsible individuals that have a concealed handgun license or a license to carry really cherish that permit, and they're not going to do anything to jeopardize that, that ability to keep that license or permit. Professor uh, Good, um, I noticed that there's something missing, or it seems to have been missing, in this conversation about concealed carry, and to a larger extent, or a more broad extent, guns on campus, and that is the high number of suicides on college campuses every year. I believe the number I read was something about about, uh, about a thousand suicides in four-year colleges and universities. And we actually know that when it comes to um, the numbers of, of, of deaths as a result of you know the, the discharge of a handgun, uh, handguns are are primarily responsible for those suicides. Um, so, was that a factor as you were thinking about how we deal with guns on campus at all? It's certainly an issue of concern, and I know from talking to people uh, in the president's office that the number of reports they get of students who express suicidal thoughts or who attempt suicide is staggeringly high, much higher than you'd expect. And obviously, if someone has access to a handgun and is suicidal, that's going to in increase the chance that they're going to commit suicide. One of the interesting th things in Australia, Australia, after they had a mass shooting many years ago, had a very vigorous program, in fact, to buy back guns. And in fact, the homicide rate decreased markedly. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that was because the suicide rate decreased markedly. That was the major explanation for it. So I, I think there is clearly a link between access to handguns and suicide. Now, I don't know how that plays out in the context of campus carry. We have, in, at the University of Texas, Austin, uh, said students who are in on-campus residence halls cannot have handguns in their rooms. Students who are in the university apartments, who tend to be older and where the configuration of the apartments is different, can have them. Uh, those are older graduate students, tend to be more mature. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are different populations. One of the things I've actually been quite impressed with, uh, with your group, Antonia, is that you've 
presented a lot of data. Uh, and a lot of your positions are backed by data. Uh, and you argue from data a lot. Um, and one of the things you've pointed out, I think I said in our report, we haven't been able to confirm what the basis of your data is, is that there haven't been any suicides linked to campus carry in the other schools uh, where there's been campus carry, some of them for many years. But there also hasn't been any data that I've seen of any increased safety, any incidents where students have actually used a concealed handgun to actually prevent anything from happening in any of those schools. What I have seen is now five incidents of ac accidental discharges. It only took three weeks in Texas for there to be an accidental discharge. I guess, the, I guess one question, though, that comes out of that is that as you look at those five accidental discharges, I believe three or four of them involved faculty or staff, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, two of them. And, two of them. Or two of them. Okay. One, was, one was a professor who literally shot himself in the foot literally. during class. <laughs> didn't have a holster. And most of them, to continue with that, also have to deal with the fact that they were, they were not holstered. And, and that plays into the, the, the empty chamber policy that we... With, your, with UT and it has made a really a unique policy um, because with that, if it was an instance where someone has, is displaying their gun, which they're not supposed to be doing that in the first right. place, right. Um, but regardless if they're showing it to a faculty member or a colleague, they weren't supposed to be doing it in the first place. Um, that's why the empty changer policy was such a concern for our group because um, really the only way for that to be a, have been enforced would be uh, police officers having to check and make sure that there was no round um, yeah. in the chamber. Well, the, and the enforcement issue is a red herring. Well, yes, but if that was an issue, if that did happen, then there would have been multiple ways to do it. But one, one method is, and really the only way you can ensure that, that people were doing what they were supposed to be doing is that to see that if they didn't have an, a round in the chamber, and that would mean unholstering their weapon. And that's when those type of, you know, instances of, of uh, deterring safety. Yeah. safety well, let me say this. two things. One is the no chamber was a belt and suspenders and would have prevented every one of those accidental discharges, every one of them. Second point is most of the recommendations are we are relying on the people who have the concealed carry handgun licenses to comply with the law. And as you say, they tend to be law-abiding people. And so, of course, enforcement of this in every aspect is very difficult. If a student has a concealed handgun without a license and they walk into my office, which, by the way, I don't tell students they can't bring guns in my office, mm -hmm. but if they do, I don't know that. If a student comes into a classroom with a concealed handgun, we don't know that. There is no practical way of enforcing this law until after there is a violation of it. And so to say that enforcement of this is going to create accidental discharges is, I think, a total red herring. The idea is you have people that we know are not going to follow or are going to be careless at some point because people are careless. And when the student at Tarleton State takes out his gun and it accidentally discharges. If there had not been a chamber ground there, that wouldn't have happened and someone's life would not have been endangered. Now, we were lucky there. Nobody got shot. But if that professor at Idaho State 
who jiggled his gun in his pants during class, he went to shot himself. If the person at Colorado State hadn't, or University of Colorado Denver hadn't, was taken out the gun and shown it to a colleague, didn't have a chamber in there, that person wouldn't have been shot. Professor, you said so. something, though, that, that I think is, is somewhat telling, perhaps, and that is that basically you're counting on those who are carrying concealed to obey the law. This is a law about people who are, going, are presumed to be law abiders. Um, and I want to get back to something that you had said a little bit earlier, and that is that not yet had an incident in which someone carrying concealed stopped the crime or the shooting from happening. Um, a hypothetical. Um, let, let me say, I don't deny that that's a possibility. And okay. There are places, we've had concealed carry in this country. Mm -hmm. Put aside campus carry. Right. For many, many years. We've had concealed carry in Texas for 21 years now. We have hundreds of thousands now, I believe a million license holders. You don't see many instances, in fact, precious few reports of where someone with a concealed handgun has prevented something. But that may be reports. Those will be reported. It's the accidental discharges that don't get reported. I'm not sure. I, I, I mean, that, this, is another, this is another issue. Um, but having said that, uh, I'm, I'm wondering if, in fact, there were that case out there. Um, and, and this is an interesting thing. After the Oregon Community College shooting, I noticed the first thing that Google and Nexus Lexus was swamped with in, in the aftermath of that were people searching a, a, the campus carry policy right. immediately after. If, if a shooting were, in fact, stopped, would that change your opinion about the wisdom of this law? Um, again, I, I have tried to approach this neutrally. Not just not neutrally, but I've tried to examine this as much as I can as a lawyer, dispassionately, and based on the data. And as I say, that's why I've been very impressed with a lot of the stuff that Antonio's group has done, because they have been very much data-driven in some regards. And my criticism is that they are not very data-driven in other regards. Uh, and, and so I certainly am open to the possibility that, on balance, the data will show concealed carry is a good thing. What I've seen so far, though, with the experience of all the campuses we've had, is that there is no, absolutely no data to show that it has been successful in any way. But what I've also seen is there have been accidental discharges that have been reported. And again, I'm much more prone to think that if there's an incident where someone with a concealed handgun actually prevents some crime from happening, we will hear about that. Oh, I'm, I I'm, no I, I no much doubt. less suspect that, no that we will hear about every accidental discharge. So, and so, to me right now, mm -hmm. the balance of the evidence is that the danger from accidental discharges is greater, is than. greater than the likelihood that anything beneficial. I, there, is, there is truth in both positions in the sense that, yes, of course it's possible that someone with a concealed handgun can prevent either a crime to him or herself, right. or indeed can do something to prevent an active shooter. Right. We can't deny that. But Professor Carter, you started to say something for you. Well, I just was, I mean, since the law passed, a lot of us have thought back to 2010 when Colton Tooley came on campus with his rifle and, 
ended up killing himself at, at the, the library. At the library. And that day, um, he, he, he intentionally did not harm anyone. He frightened a lot of people. And because people were frightened, they had very different descriptions of his clothing. Um, someone had it said he had on a long, dark coat. Someone had it said he had on a short coat. There were different colors. We were on lockdown on campus all day long. We were on lockdown because people were afraid that there were, there were more than one, one person with a gun. We had SWAT teams. We had dogs. We had soldiers in the hallway with rifles doing building, to, building room to room. I think back of that day and remember being locked down in my office with my colleagues and wonder what a few more good guys with guns, overconfident good guys with guns with, what is it, four hours of required training, what that would have done to that day, to us that day. I mean, um, I, I think more guns means the possibility of more danger, more tragedy, more violence. Um, the attorney general said in court that uh, our, the, the professor's desires to keep guns out of the classroom was equivalent to banning a Canadian from the classroom. Um, a Canadian, a loaded Canadian, <laughs> might take you out for a really great dinner and some good conversation. A loaded Canadian cannot maim or injure anyone. Um, a loaded gun, a loaded gun is a lethal weapon and it is a, it's a terrible But again, the narrative is going back to the fact that as if the intent of campus carry is to basically have this student militia on campus where we have this extra campus security. Campus carry is for the benefit of the individual who has the right to carry, and that is self-defense, is self-protection, it's personal protection, not campus protection. We're not advocating for the fact that because this person has a license to carry and can bring it on campus, that therefore they're going to save the life of someone else if a mass shooting may happen or something else may happen. Unfortunately, that's not reality of it, and that is not the training that students and people who have license to carry permits are trained uh, to, to learn. They're trained to protect themselves with, with a, a situation where they are in danger, not those around them. If they are able to, that's an addition, but not in, in keeping with the training that they, they have learned in their, in their training. I just looked at my watch and I see that we're fast running out of time. And part of our uh, objective here was to give people who had questions of the panelists an opportunity to speak. Obviously, we, it would be great if we didn't have anyone filibustering about the issue, and I think it was, as we've already established, people's minds are well made up. So if you would please limit your comments to a question, um, it would be greatly appreciated by those who are behind you. So my name's Rosie Zander, and I was an activist during Cox Knock Locks. Um, <laughs> thanks. We haven't... Uh, we haven't brought up the issue of sexual assault on campus. The statistics already say that one in three women will be sexually assaulted or raped during their time at college. How do you tell women that for the first two years of college they can A, now not own a gun, and that sexual assault rates have been proven to increase where guns are readily available? Anyone want to take that? I, I didn't hear the question. Uh, could you just...
It's a, it's a little, uh, to be totally candid with you, it may be beyond the scope of, of how things have changed since August 1st. Uh, and I'm not sure that any of our panelists are. Well, but I mean, I think, I think part of the concern is that, you know, I've, I've been on, on a, in a situation like this before where we're debating. It was a, Mr. Lott and I debated. And I, I've, I've learned that for every statistic he threw out, I had one. For every, every one I threw out, mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. threw out. But I do think that there has to be some acknowledgement that between the FBI and the Department of Education in two states where there is campus carry, forcible rape and aggravated sexual assault has gone up not just 2 or 3%, but remarkably high. And, and I'm not saying that there is a, I'm not saying there's a correlation, but the correlation, the, the phenomenon can't be ignored. And so because there's a possibility, I do think it's incumbent upon law enforcement and administration of, of colleges and universities to, to account for that. I think that's what the question is. How are you going to account for that knowing that that's possible? Because the whole, the whole conversation we're having on both sides is about possibilities. And so if that's a possibility, and we've seen those numbers increase in other places, what is the plan to address it? I think that's, okay. Let, let me just answer. First, I look extremely carefully at the data about the relationship between campus carry and sexual assault. There is absolutely no evidence that campus carry has led to an increase in sexual assault. None. And I'd be happy to supply you all the information. It's in our working group report. I went, to I went to it through it at great length. For example, in Colorado, the Colorado College had a marked increase in sexual assault after campus carry went in, but it's a private school that doesn't have campus carry. It, that's, it happens off campus. I mean, there really is no correlation that's been demonstrated. Let's, let's this, move on. We have, we okay. have a limited amount of time. Forgive us. Uh, your, your name and your yeah. question, please. Hi, my name is Mia. I'm a student reporter here on campus. And my question is kind of similar in scope um, to hers. We've been getting a lot of complaints or concerns from students of color on campus, particularly men of color, who have this fear that if I want to participate in concealed carry and I get into a situation with an officer, how is that going to play out? Um, and again, you might not be able to have the answer to this question might be beyond your scope, but what are you going to, what do you, what do you tell them similar to her question? And because this is backed by data that like, you know, whether they're armed or unarmed, it has the potential to be fatal. Well, I'll answer that one. Um, I would tell them what I tell my brother that who is on the University of Houston's campus who's 6'2 and has dreads as long as, as probably your hair, um, who was a black man, and who has told me several times, uh, texting me, that he's afraid of the gunshots that he hears outside his room sometimes. I would tell him that Campus Carry is about making sure that he, my brother, is able to protect himself because there will be people who, because of the color of his skin, because they think that he's scary or shouldn't be walking home at night, um, want to harm him. But the fact is that I want my brother to be able to protect himself if someone's going to do that to him. And, another and Campus Carry, Campus Carry, uh, taking that right away from him to be able to protect himself, a law-abiding citizen who's going to be going to NASA and interning soon, that's the tragedy there. The tragedy is not someone who should not have a gun in the first place trying to harm him. Well, another, the another, chances uh, is, so to go into that, well, another, is another about tragedy, another tragedy. African Americans. So another, I just want to go into that because to say that that's not what I'm talking about, the, I'm one, what I'm trying to say is 
that we have politicized this issue too much to the point where we feel that campus carry is not for me as a black person, as a black woman. And I've talked to many people who don't believe the things that I believe in other aspects of it, but understand the fact that, yes, there are issues that I can't deal with right now that have to go through the scope of what's going on in America right now, and that's something we're going to have to deal with. But the fact of the matter is that I want to be able, a law-abiding citizen who has an LTC, I want to be able to protect myself against someone who is a dangerous bigot who wants to harm me because of how I look like. And that is allowing me to be able to protect myself in that situation. And that is the, an, an individual right. Professor, you started to say something. I, I was just going to say, I mean, the, one of the tragedies also is that a, a black man Second Amendment rights and a white man's Second Amendment rights are not exactly on an equal plane. And in fact, I, I do believe, I do believe that we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the wake of Charlotte. Yes, indeed. Uh, in fact, we're already starting to hear a pretty good uh, a bit. Let's move on to the next questioner if we can. I'm sorry. Oh, yes, please. Yes, I didn't see the microphone. Sorry. So I guess my question is about the framing of the issue. Your name, please, and uh, where are you from? Sorry, uh, Maria Mendez. I'm a student here at the University of Texas. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting that Antonia really talked about individual uh, protection. But my question is, how do you deal with uh, a public education institution which encompasses a lot of individuals, individuals who might or might not be ready to see guns, or not see guns, but to have the notion of having guns on campus? How do you negotiate between protecting individual and collective rights? I guess it's for me. Um, and with that is to go into the fact that, um, you know, being able to be a student who has the right to be able to protect themselves on campus, just like they would be able to have that same right going off of campus. Um, I think part of the narrative that we've been talking about with campus carry and we've been hearing in, in regards to the news and the media is that, um, for example, even talking about the First Amendment issue and free speech on campus, uh, the fact is, is that higher Institute of Higher Education isn't the only place where we'd be able to have uh, people to have guns, license permits, who can have guns on campus and talk about controversial issues. We already have that, we already see that in the Texas State Capitol where we're talking about very controversial issues and yet they've been able to have concealed carry there for decades. Same thing with any other area where you're talking about something that's a heated topic that's controversial. And what our organization has always focused on is that why not allow the person who is 21 years of age and having that heated discussion or what have you and off campus to be able to, to do the same thing here? Because the fact of the matter is, is that those law-abiding citizens with statistics have shown, the Texas Department of Public Safety has shown time and time again that those law-abiding citizens are actually one-fifth less likely to, to harm someone with, um, in a violent manner than the general population. And so, Time and time again, they've shown that we have been able to, to talk about those issues without harming anyone. We're already over our time limit, but I think we should try to get in two more questions if you would be willing to, to take them. Uh, sir. We'll try to be quick. I have a daughter who's a freshman here. I just don't want to underestimate the impact this had. When she expressed interest in going to this school, and I'm from out of state, 
I really had very serious reservations. I worried about issues of safety. I worried about academic freedom. I read the articles of the faculty and staff that left, you know, and it was a really big issue. And I actually contacted the president's office and got a call back from one of the associate vice presidents, Carl, who really sort of convinced me of the interest in safety, the president's personal inter interest in this issue. And I wonder about the legislator. I mean, I understand every private university in this state opted out. Doesn't that mean anything? When you get to be a legislator, does nothing else mean anything? I mean, doesn't that mean anything? Do you don't listen? I, 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 think, I, think, we're on the, I think we're on the same side. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I think you're using something, you're using something that is a, is a scarcity in the legislature and that is logic and common sense. So, yeah. Ma'am. Uh, my name is Katie McCall. I am also a student at the University of Texas. My mom can mimic some of those same concerns. She's sitting right there and wanted me to leave. Um, but my question is concerning the mental illness. We talked a little bit about suicide, but we know that mentally ill are able to obtain guns, and we know that college students are, in general, more mentally ill and more mentally unstable. How are we going to account for that and the ability for them to legally obtain and carry guns on campus with examples like getting heated in the classroom, getting angry with a professor, getting angry with a significant other, things like that? How do we account for the difference in mental stability of college students and their ability to carry on campus? That was a huge part of our concerns, the faculty concerns, when we wrote up our, our complaint. Um, we, our population is at the age of adult onset for schizophrenia, depression. We have so many students who arrive with paperwork with medical conditions. They don't have to self-disclose, but sometimes they do. Um, and the numbers of students with depression and anxiety disorders, um, you know, our, our legislators haven't been too concerned about just the the general welfare, um, public safety issues that are the concern of educators in a huge public institution like this. Unfortunately, this has to be our, I'm sorry, would you like to? I was going to say, I, just to also add that part of the working group recommendations that President Fenves uh, received and adopted was to increase, to, to look seriously at the mental health services uh, and to devote more resources to mental health services on campus Texas, for that very reason. But Texas is also one of the states with the, the smallest amount of resources for mental health services in public universities and colleges. Unfortunately, this has to be our last question, sir. Uh, so you mentioned uh, that you don't feel comfortable with Your name, the, please, I'm oh, sorry. Sorry, my name is Alexander Hoffman from Southwestern University. And you mentioned the uh, four-hour um, requirement to obtain the CHL. Is there a a time amount where you would feel comfortable, or is there no amount of training that you would feel comfortable with? I think when the required minimum is reduced from 10 to 4, it shows a kind of gross concern, unconcern with public safety. It takes like 300 hours to get a hairdresser's license here with mandatory two-year training. Um, uh, I just, you know, uh, no, four hours minimum seems really grossly negligent, and I don't think we can call um, accidental discharge is accidental. It's negligent treatment of a lethal weapon. I think we have to call guns lethal weapons. That's what they are.